Well, uh, welcome once again. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I'm glad that you can uh, worship with us today. Um, every household, I don't know about your own household, but every household has their own set of rules. Um, and I discovered this at a, f- a fairly young age. Uh, I had a lot of uh, non-Korean, non-Asian friends, uh, white and black. Uh, the majority of my friends were when I was growing up. Uh, but I, I realized that every house had a different set of rules and guidelines. Uh, and, and the first time where this just kind of hit me was when I went over to my um, wife friend's house. And uh, I started taking off my shoes. And he's like, no, 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 no. You can keep your shoes on. And I was just really puzzled. I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah, we just wear our shoes around the house. And uh, I was just really genuinely confused at this, uh, yeah, just keeping the shoes on. And I found myself actually tiptoeing around the house <laughs> just because, like, it just was just so foreign. And then also my friends would come into my house, and they would be confused. I'm like, dude, you got to take off your shoes. Like, what are you talking about? Like, this is what we do. And they, you know, they take off their shoes, very self-conscious about walking around the house without their shoes on. Um, another thing my friend realized about our house, because we had a very unique, di- we had unique set of rules for dinner. Uh, my grandparents lived with us, and so uh, no one could take a bite of their food unless grandpa ate first. I don't know if this was your experience. So we're sitting around the dinner table, and everyone's literally just, the food is out, but we're just waiting for Grandpa to come out. And as soon as he takes the sip of his soup, then everyone else can eat. And, and our friends were confused about that, too. And when I went over to their house, they're just like, you know, it's just free-for-all eating. Um, every household has a different set of rules, and, and, and it's true for this house as well, uh, the household of God. Uh, the letter of 1 Timothy, in which we've been studying and learning about, Paul is going over the household rules of the church that is in Ephesus. Uh, Timothy, a young pastor, now has this difficult responsibility of navigating the very secular culture outside, but also trying to maintain the unity and the purity of the church from enemies or false teachers within. And he writes these this letter, an open letter, actually, the entire church would have read and heard of how to conduct themselves in the household of God. Uh, these false teachers neglected and disregarded the message of the gospel. Uh, they started teaching irreverent myths and misapplying scripture, leading people astray. And so there's chaos, disorder, and division in the church. And so Paul is wanting to write this letter to restore stability by instructing Timothy in the church of how they ought to behave in the household of God. There is a specific set of rules in this house. And so last week, we talked about elders and pastors, those whom God had called to oversee, lead, and rule his home. Right? Pastors are called to lead, shepherd, to teach, and model Christ. But not anyone can just do this. There are qualifications of who, who's going to take this office of elder or pastor. you got to look at his personal life his family life, his social life, and his spiritual life. Only then can we confirm the calling and character of of this man to take the office of elder or pastor. Now, uh, when we're reading this text, uh, we cannot misapply this passage. Just because you're not called or appointed to be an elder or deacon does not dismiss these qualifications for your own Christian life. Every Christian is called to live up to these qualifications. And so it doesn't mean that we can be blameworthy or a lover of money or just be unfaithful husband. No, Uh, every Christian is called to live in a way that is godly and honoring 
uh, to, to Christ. All right, so today we're going to look at another important office in the church, and that is the role of a deacon. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 8 through 13, uh, and I'm going to read 14 through 16 later, but we're going to focus on 8 through 13 for now. Let's give our full attention as I read God's word for us. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Amen. So Paul's main objective in this letter is to reestablish gospel order and ground the church in the truth of Scripture. And the result of being aligned in the gospel and being grounded in the truth of Scripture is that the church will be godly. Godliness is the goal and the objective of Paul in writing this letter, that the church will conduct, them, conduct ourselves in a way that honors God, that reflects God's very nature, his holiness, and his goodness. So how does the church grow in godliness? How are we going to grow in holiness? Uh, one way is through calling and appointing leaders in the church. It's by calling and appointing, appointing leaders in the church. In order for the church to conduct themselves in godliness, we need godly examples, godly models, people that leads us in the way that God wants his church to go. And so today, I get to preach on deacons. Now, you guys know that my son's name is Deacon, so I think the stars perfectly aligned, and it was God's sovereignty for me to actually be able to teach on the office of deacon. So when Jane was pregnant with our first, she started listing off all these names, all these D names. Now, I didn't say, uh, hey, find a D name because my name starts with a D. I didn't say that. She just started na naming all these D names. And finally, she said, deacon, how about deacon? And like, I was really moved by it. I was like, oh my gosh, God must have spoke to Jane. Uh, this is a biblical, uh, this is an office in, in the early church. Uh, she must have prayed about it, and God just gave her, gave her this vision. She opened up scripture, and she went to this passage. She's like, we're going to name our son Deacon, right? That's what I thought. I'm like, so Jane, like, this is awesome. What, 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 like, how did you come up with this name, right? And I was, like, waiting in anticipation for this, like, deep, profound, spiritual, like, truth. It's like, um, Reese Witherspoon named her son Deacon. <laughs> and I liked it. And I was like, Oh, that's it? <laughs> well, you know, for, for me, genuinely, I knew what the meaning was. So, that, so I explained to Jane, oh, do you know what deacon means? Like, oh, no, it does, I don't really know what it means. It means servant, to serve. It, it's, it's an office that we see in the early church. And so I was, I was moving. And of course, when I shared that with her, she was like, oh, yeah, that's great. Um, and, you know, actually, our daughter, uh, her name is Devin. And in Gaelic, it actually means the same. It means servant. As well, we're gonna have a tricky time finding a third D name that means servant for our third child that's on the way. Um, but yeah, and it's kind of, it's gonna be a little confusing if Deacon ever becomes a pastor. He'll be Elder Deacon, which yeah, it's gonna confuse the church. But anyways, Deacon, 
right? In the Greek, a diakonos. Uh, it means servant or minister. And this is a very important uh, office and calling uh, for those within this church uh, to serve as deacons. So three things that I want us to learn from this passage. First is the role, the role of a deacon. Secondly is the qualifications. And lastly, the secret of godliness, the secret of godliness. So first, the role. What do deacons do? What do deacons do? Right, this first, uh, the word, uh, Greek word diakonos, is not the, uh, this is not the first time we see actually diakonos showing up in our, our passage. Actually, throughout the Gospels, we see this word deacon being used. Um, but only after uh, Jesus' death and resurrection and the establishment of the early church do we see the office of a deacon emerge. And so we have to go to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Uh, the passage should go up on the screen for you. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full member of the, uh, of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and whom, and whom we will appoint to this duty." But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole, uh, pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and uh, Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, and, uh, and a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. So there was a need that arose within the church. There were social needs that weren't being met by the church and by its leaders. And so three key responsibilities for deacons, because this, this was the context of this office coming uh, into uh, the church, and ultimately is an office of servitude. So three primary responsibilities. First is meet needs according to the word. Deacons fill the gaps. And the key phrase here is according to the word, because there are countless needs in the church. There's so many needs outside the church. But what we want to prioritize is what the scripture teaches and commands us to do as a church. So deacons are to meet the needs according to the word. So the apostles were neglecting their primary responsibilities because there was a need that wasn't being met. And this was basically that the Hellenists, right? These were uh, Greek Jewish Christians, right? Their widows were not being attended to while the Hebrews uh, widows were being attended to. And so they came before the apostles and said, hey, what's going on? Uh, wh why is there such a discrepancy in how these widows are being treated? And so the apostles, what they ended up uh, doing was they started participating in, in distribution, waiting on tables, neglecting their primary responsibility, which, which, were, which was to preach the word and to pray. And so they came up with this idea, hey, let's appoint some individuals to actually be able to do this distribution so we can focus on preaching and prayer. And so this is how the office of deacon first came, came about. There was a need that was being overlooked, a biblical need that was being overlooked, and that was caring for widows. And so they appointed 
deacons. And so here at All Nations Community Church, we have deacons assisting in different areas of ministry, finance, small groups, uh, life group, college group, um, and all these different areas to, to fill a need. And ultimately, we want to be faithful to the commands of Scripture and prioritize them. And so essentially, the, the primary ministry of deacons is the ministry of mercy, the ministry of mercy to the sick and poor. And I, I believe that our, our deacons know that, and, and we're striving for that, that we can serve the areas of need in this community, but also outside. Secondly, second role of a deacon is to support the ministry of the word. And this is seen primarily in the deacons supporting the elders and pastors so that we can teach and pray and administer the sacraments. The ministry of the word is a primary responsibility of the pastor. However, because the widows were being neglected, the pastors started, and, uh, started to wait on tables and to serve the widows, right? um, taking time away from their main primary responsibility. And so deacons support the elders so that the elders can be free to perform the task of preaching and prayer. Right? In addition to supporting the pastors, deacons are called to lead other servants. Right? They're to lead others to serve and so this is a position of leadership as well. Lastly, deacons are called to unify the body around the word. There was a division between the Hellenists and the Hebraic Christians. There was a neglect of one group over the other. And so there was probably disappointment, discontentment, frustration, feeling, uh, feelings of resentment towards the Hebraic Jews because the Hellenist widows weren't being taken care of. So deacons were appointed to unify, right, the, the church, this community, around the word of God. To summarize, deacons are called to meet the needs of the community, to support the elders, and to unify the church. What I want to notice, though, uh, in uh, last week's message and this week's passage, is that what elders and deacons share in common, it is the word, right? The elders and the deacons aren't in competition, they're actually working in tandem to maintain the purity and the unity of Scripture. And that's very important to, to know. And what history has shown us in, in the Asian American church is there's kind of this two different houses competing for their own agenda. But no, the, the, the early church and us here at All Nations Community Church, deacons and elders, uh, the pastors and deacons, we want to be uniform when it comes to Scripture. We're all working towards the same goal, and that is, by, that is to be a godly church, wrapping ourselves around the truth of Scripture. So then this leads us to the second point. Who qualifies? Who can be an elder or a deacon in this church? So what are the qualifications? What are the qualifications? Now we see overlapping qualifications between elders and deacons. Let me share four qualifications. The first qualification is this. is self-mastery or self-discipline. Are they mastered or controlled by something else other than the gospel or scripture? So verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Deacons are, are called to exercise or they are, they are to show and exemplify self-control, 
with what they say, not to be double-tongued. They're consistent with what they say and what they do. Uh, they don't say one thing to your face and then go around your back and say a different thing about you to another individual. Right? Not double-tongued. Do they have control over what they consume? And particularly here, alcohol. Do they get drunk? Uh, can they not handle their alcohol? Do they just overdo it? Another way to see if, they're, if they have self-mastery is, what is their attitude towards money? Is money their idol? Is it controlling their lives? Are they sacrificing uh, their commitment to the church or to their families to, to, for that money, for that paycheck? Right? So we have to look at their own personal self-mastery, or are they being ruled and controlled by something else? The second qualification is, do they have proper beliefs? What do they believe? Verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, mystery here is not something that is unknown, but rather that something that has been hidden. Uh, you can think of it as a secret. So it's not mystery as in, oh, I don't know what this is. No, it's, it was kept secret until Jesus Christ came to reveal that faith or, or the, uh, that gospel. The secret of the faith, which has been revealed in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying deacons must hold tight to the truth of the gospel, to not neglect it or ignore it as the false teachers have done. Right? In this same letter, Paul talks about these false teachers, how their conscience is seared because they've ignored and neglected the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, in contrast to that, deacons are called to take a hold of and hold tightly to the gospel of Jesus Christ, not to neglect it, but to always have it in the forefront of their minds. They need to know the gospel, right? Because the ministry of mercy is based on the gospel. And the grace of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, needs to fuel the ministry of deacons. Right, to, to meet every, various different needs, to support the elders, and then to unify the church. How are they going to do that if they, if they do not know the gospel and live in light of it? So deacons need to know and believe and live out the truths of Jesus Christ. Third qualification is that they need to be proven. They need to be proven. Have they been tested? Have they been tested? Verse 10. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. A testing period is necessary for the church and his leaders to observe this individual and see if they're qualified to become a deacon. So we need to screen and observe members before they take this office. And it should be clear. Uh, it shouldn't be so difficult for us by just observing or hearing about someone to be able to say, hey, this individual has gospel character. He has self-mastery. He's not ruled and controlled by earthly things. Right. Lastly, last qualification, and similar to that of elders, deacons are called to lead and manage their household well. Right? And I explained that last week a little bit more in depth, but what I want to talk about here is another controversial topic within the church is that it's the idea of women deacons. Within Scripture, are there guidelines or rules uh, that permit women to become deacons? 
Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, there is a problem with this passage, and I won't say that about a lot of, of course, I don't want to say that about Scripture, but there's a, a little bit of a problem here. Because in the original Greek Bible, that pronoun there is actually not there. It's not there. Uh, rather, it should read, likewise, wives must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, this is, again, controversial because different church denominations or even just churches in general, they will apply this passage very differently. And so, you know, we go back and forth and we argue and debate, but we do this as brothers and sisters, not as enemies. We do this as brothers and sisters. And so I want to share with you my own personal conviction and, and where we stand as a church um, is that we believe that women can be ordained as deacons. All Nations Community Church, All Nations Church have women deacons in office to serve the church. Now, not only because that there, there's a, uh, there, there isn't a pronoun in the original Greek Bible, but also it's odd that Paul would talk about deacons' wives but not talk about elders' wives. Right? The elder is, hold, is held to a higher standard because they're to teach. Why wouldn't Paul talk about elders' wives? Right? Why is he just identifying deacons' wives to, to instruct them or to tell the husbands, make sure right, your, your wives, deacons' wives, that, that, to exemplify these qualities? And that's a bit odd. But another reason why uh, I believe and our church believes that, that women can be deacons is that we see that in the early church. Romans chapter 16, verses 1. There is a woman named Phoebe in, Cren uh, Cren in a city called Crencrea. Crencrea is uh, a port city in uh, the city of uh, uh, Corinth. Um, and, and Paul addresses Phoebe as a servant, as a minister representing the church in Crencrea. And so we see a development of women deacon within the early church. And that's why we believe that all nations both men and women can take the office of deacon. And so those are the four qualifications. Four qualifications. Do they have self-mastery? Do they believe in the true gospel? Have they been proven? And lastly, do they uh, rule and manage their household well? Right? And so this is a good opportunity for us, for me, uh, to talk to our deacons here and also to address those that want possibly to be a deacon in the future, right? Do we reflect these godly characteristics and these qualifications? Are you, as church members, as potential deacons, are we growing in godliness? When people mention your name for, for a potential deacon candidate, would people say, yeah, you know what? They do exemplify these characteristics or these qualifications. Our deacons are called, once again, to meet the needs of its members, to support its elders, and to sustain the unity of the gospel within the church. If I can, offer just a word of warning. Right? It's one thing for us to desire and aspire for these offices of elders and deacons, and it is a high calling because you are essentially called to serve. To serve. Um, but it's a whole other thing for you to demand this office, 
or to say, I need this office. Uh, and that is, a, that is an attitude and, and um, I've seen in the church. And if that is the case, I would encourage you and challenge you to re-examine your heart. Uh, this is a, a very difficult and high calling to, to, to be a, an elder or a deacon. And you're ultimately called to serve. Both offices of elder and deacons are a reflection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our great shepherd. He is our great elder. And Jesus Christ is the great suffering servant. These offices reflect Jesus Christ in his ministry and what he did for us on that cross. So this is the gospel. Jesus Christ, before his crucifixion, came into a room filled with his disciples what were they doing? They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. When Jesus inaugurates his kingdom, who's going to be the greatest? But something is wrong in that room because their feet are still dirty and there's a basin of water sitting there. The house servant is nowhere to be found. And all the disciples must have been looking at each other. Okay, who's going to do this? Giving each other the look. Hey, hey, you do it. All of them thought that this responsibility to wash the feet of the disciples was too, was too beneath them, was too low for them. And then something astonishing happens. Jesus Christ, their master and teacher, gets down on his knees, wraps a towel around his waist, and starts washing his disciples' feet. We are called, brothers and sisters, not just deacons, not just elders, to take the posture of Jesus Christ, to see the model of a servant that's seen in Jesus Christ specifically in this moment where no one was wanting to wash the dirty feet. Jesus, the master, the teacher, gets down and shows what it means to serve. He takes the posture of a slave to wash the feet of his disciples. Church, we are all called to serve each other sacrificially. If there's a need in your small group, if someone is suffering, consider meeting that person's need. If there is a ministry that you feel like is lacking in this church, I hope that your first impulse is not to go and talk about it. I hope that your impulse will be like, okay, what can I do to help? Because it's so easy to be cynical. I, I know it's easy to point the finger and to complain. But brothers and sisters, the, the church, uh, what, what Jesus Christ calls to is to serve first. And I know it's easy to criticize the pastors. I've been there as well. Again, I want to encourage you to pray. To pray. Praying is an act of service. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your deacons. Pray for our council members. We are an imperfect church. We're, we're imperfect. We are a work in progress. And so I want to encourage, implore, and, and plead. Let's serve each other. And the first place I want to direct you to is your small group. And if you're not part of a small group, please join one. You can experience what it means to be a gospel community in a small group. See, God desires for us to be a household that reflects him, and therefore he calls and he appoints qualified elders and deacons 
to contend for the truth, to model godliness, and to lead his household well. But we are all called to pursue godliness together. So where do we start? Where do we start? If you want to start today in growing in godliness, how do we do this? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in this flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. What is the secret of godliness? This is it. But when you look at this list, you don't see any commands. You don't see a to-do list. Paul's not saying, the secret of godliness is this. Hey, start fasting. Start praying. Start reading your Bibles. Start going out to small groups. Start serving. Go on mission trips. He doesn't offer any of these suggestions on this list. What in the world is Paul doing? What is the secret of godliness? You know what Paul is doing here? This is a hymn. In the middle of a letter, he breaks and he pauses and he starts singing and worshiping who? Jesus Christ. Right? This is not instructive. He's describing, this is descriptive. He's not instructing us in how to be godly. He's describing to us someone, and that is Jesus Christ. Right? This is not a blueprint for godliness. Rather, he's telling us about who Jesus Christ is. Brothers and sisters, if you want to grow in godliness, it needs to first start with our worship. Worship. Worshiping the true Jesus Christ. Not a fabrication, not our own personal uh, avatar of Jesus Christ, but the true Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? It's a simple, simple question, but so many of us, we get it wrong. We get it wrong. We get Jesus wrong. We get the gospel wrong. See, in the city of Ephesus, and I shared this last week, there was a great temple of Artemis, right? This was their patron god, goddess in the city. And what, what they would hear around the city is this, is this just anthem. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They will just go around the city shouting this. What Paul, is doing, what Paul is saying here, when he says, great indeed we confess, he's being polemical right here. He's, being, uh, he's uh, an opposite, opposing the Greek goddess of Artemis and saying, no, there's a greater God. There is a greater God. There's an ultimate Savior, and that is Jesus Christ, not Artemis. See, godliness starts first with an accurate knowledge and understanding of who Jesus Christ is. See, it's one thing to, for us to neglect or to reject our idols, right? And that doesn't work. Rejecting our idols does not work because something needs to come in place of a rejection of an idol. We need a greater God, right? We need Jesus Christ. And so godliness needs to start with Jesus and our worship of him. This is essential. Proper theology will lead us in godliness. And it can lead us in godliness. So who is Jesus? What did he do? And what will he do? Manifested in the flesh. He became man. Divinity took on humanity. Why? Why did Jesus have to manifest, manifest himself in the flesh? 
He needed to succeed where Adam failed. We needed a greater Adam. We needed a second Adam to actually obey God's commands perfectly, but also to die the penalty of sin on our behalf, manifested in the flesh. He became man. He's talking about the incarnation. Vindicated by the Spirit, he suffered the most humiliating form of capital punishment for sins that he did not commit, but he did not remain dead in the grave. He rose again on the third day, right? clearing himself, clearing himself of the guilt. But that was our guilt. He cleared it all. When God rose him on the third day, vindicated, he conquered sin and death. Seen by angels, he's talking about his ascension. He sits at the right hand of God Almighty. Angels have seen him. That is what Paul is saying. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, the glory of Jesus is universally proclaimed. And we're hearing about this in our testimonies, in our mission reports. Jesus Christ, his name is going across this entire world. They believed on. The church is growing. Slowly, it is growing and is reaching every nation. Taken up in glory, he is glorified as a church is faithfully proclaiming and being obedient to the Great Commission. See, what is Paul doing here? He's not giving us a a list of things to do. He's saying, do you believe in this? Do you worship this Jesus or a version of Jesus that you made up on your own mind? Or maybe you're worshiping a different God. And your anthem is not Jesus, but your anthem is great, is Artemis. In Ephesians. See, godliness starts with a clear understanding and acceptance of Jesus. And godliness can grow in individuals and in our community as we grow in a deeper understanding and knowledge of the gospel. And so last week, I shared that godliness is not about performance, but about position. It's not about performance. It's first understanding what our position is. Now, let me explain what this means a little bit more. Uh, growing up, uh, even now, I'm still a fan of the X Games. You guys know the X Games? These are extreme sports, skateboarding, snowboarding, BMXing. Um, I, I was really into watching. I-, I wanted to participate in these sports, but I just I couldn't do these. Anything with wheels, I'm not really good at. <laughs> right? Um, but the format of these competitions are interesting because you have three opportunities. You have three runs to get the highest score. Right? Three runs to get the highest score. And whoever gets the highest score wins the gold medal. Now, there is this Korean girl, Phenom, Chloe Kim. Do you guys know her? Snowboarder. Crazy good. She's, she was 16, right, when, uh, in, this, in this illustration that I'm giving. So in the two, 2016 X Games, the super pipe, the half pipe, right? These, these are scary. I, I, I would never... Go on the half by. But in the second run, in this competition, she scored the highest. She secured her gold medal. But there's a third run. She didn't have to do this third run, actually, because she already won the gold medal. Right? She could have gone down, straight down the middle of the super pipe, and she still would have won the gold medal. But she did something different. She actually decided to do a run. And in this final third run, even though it didn't matter, she did something that has been never done by a woman in, in the superpipe. 
And that was back-to-back 1080s. Now you guys are thinking, what is that? That's four cycles, right? Three, four. Yeah. Four cycles. What is it? Three? Three full cycles. Three full cycles. Three full cycles. No woman, she was 16 at this time, no woman has ever accomplished this. Two back-to-back 1080s. Now think about this. Why? Why would she do this? Why was she able to do this? Pressure was off. It didn't even matter, right? But because she loves her sport and she loves the fans, she was able to pull this off. It it didn't matter that she did this third run, but she did it anyways. There was no pressure. There was no anxiety. She did it out of pure joy of the sport and pure love of the fans. Brothers and sisters, our pursuit of holiness is the same. It should be the same. Why? Jesus Christ has secured for us a position in his kingdom, not by our works, but by by Christ's work, his performance. We have a gold medal waiting for us. But so often in the Christian life, because we know that we are saved by grace, we just like sit and do nothing. We're idle. But what Chloe Kim, what she demonstrated is a love of the sport and a love for the fans. For us, our pursuit of holiness should be the same. Our love for Jesus, our love for Jesus and wanting to glorify God. We can run harder. We can try harder with no fear, no anxiety, because we have nothing to lose, but only to gain the glory and joy that God wants to give to us, because that's why he gives us his word. Not to, not to uh, be a killjoy, not so that we suffer, but so that we can live life to its fullest. But the key thing is, we have nothing to lose, because our position is secure in Christ Jesus. Church, brothers and sisters, may we seek him. May we run after him harder. May we pursue godliness. May we try different things. Not out of fear, not out of guilt, but out of pure joy and gratitude for what Christ Jesus has done for us. For our good, but ultimately for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that The key to godliness is not not me, it's not us and our ability to perform. But Lord, the key is to know and surrender our lives to Jesus. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to see your son better, to know him deeper, and for our affections to grow day by day. God, these past two Sundays, we learned about the role of elders and pastors and today about deacons. I want to lift up our pastors to you. I want to lift up myself and our deacons and our council members to you. God, we need your help. We are imperfect. But Lord, we know that you are working to sanctify us and to mature us and to uh, grow us so that we can better serve your church, your blood-bought people here at All Nations. But we cry out for help. And I pray, Lord, that you'll continue to increase the numbers of leaders and elders within this church to better maintain the unity and the purity of the gospel. God, we need your help because it's easy to be cynical. It's easy to point to fingers. God, I pray that you'll call us, Lord, to pray, to serve, to love each other as Christ has shown and modeled for us. 
in that upper room with his disciples. God, we, I lift up this community to you. God, I thank you, Lord, that you are, you are growing us. You are maturing us. But, Lord, we, we are so far. We are so far from it at times. Holy Spirit, I ask that you will help us grow in godliness more and more, increasingly. For your name's sake and for our, for our ultimate good, God, we ask all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.